He is worthy, isn't he? Happy Easter, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. In the earliest traditions of the church on Easter Sunday, a greeting was given and a response was then returned. It went like this. He is risen, and the response was, he is risen indeed. Let's try this at home. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Uh, now, you can do better than that. Let's try it one more time. This time, really shout it out. He is risen. He is risen indeed. It's a great day because Jesus is alive. Even in the midst of a virus, Jesus is alive. Even in the midst of uncertainty, Jesus is alive. Even when we don't know what the future holds, Jesus is alive and we know who holds the future. Welcome everyone to Easter at Grace. This will go down as a mem memorable Easter, won't it? One we won't soon forget. Over the years, our family has celebrated Easter in two different countries and four different states. For two years, we lived in Colorado Springs. Out our front windows, we could see Pikes Peak. Off our back deck, we could watch the Air Force Academy train their pilots and paratroopers. The local newspaper was the Journal Gazette. From time to time, there would be articles about different incidences that would happen on the ski slopes. One article caught my eye. Skier breaks her leg and wounds her pride. A man and his wife were headed for the slopes and both were novice skiers. And after they had taken the beginner lessons, they headed for the slopes. As they were standing in line to take the lift up the mountain, the woman told her husband she needed to use the restroom. Now the husband, not wanting to lose their place in line, he reassured her there would be restrooms at the top of the mountain. They get to the top and of course there were no restrooms. They begin to make their way down the mountain and mother nature began to call stronger than at the bottom of the mountain. The woman decided to head for the tree line to have shelter as she took care of business. Now for those of you who ski, you know there is a right way to position your skis to keep from sliding downhill and a wrong way. She set her skis and had just pulled her ski pants down when all of a sudden she began sliding downhill backwards with her ski, ski pants around her ankles. She started at a slow creep down the mountain and it turned into a downhill racer until she collided with a ski lift tower, breaking her leg, still unable to get up or to take care of her situation with her ski pants. The ski patrol came to rescue, covered her up, and rushed her to the hospital. In the emergency room, she was able to collect herself and relax as she waited to be released. Right before the nurse came in with the final instructions for her, a man wearing ski bibs was brought in and placed next to her. He was in rough shape with what appeared to be a broken arm and a broken leg. The woman, curious as to what had happened, asked him, what did you do? What happened? The man replied, it was the darndest thing. I was riding up the lift when all of a sudden a, one, a woman came out of the tree line skiing backwards with her pants down to her ankles. I leaned forward to get a better look to find out what was going to happen when all of a sudden I fell out of the lift and broke my arm and leg. 
He paused and he looked at her and he said, so how did you break your leg? At that point, I'm sure she wanted to swap her current reality, her regret for a new reality of relief. Ever want to do that? Do you ever want to trade your reality of regret for relief? Wouldn't it be great if we could do that? Wouldn't it be great to start over, to take a mulligan, as they say in golf, have a do-over in life and be free from the regrets and having lasting relief? I don't know what you think about Easter, but here at Grace, we believe that Jesus was crucified, buried, and three days later rose from the dead. You may be skeptical about that. In fact, I would imagine we have different types of people viewing today uh, that are on a spectrum. On the one side, uh, on the one end of the spectrum, you have, we have those who don't believe it, maybe even call themselves an atheist. Then there are the skeptics. They really wonder if Jesus did rise from the dead. And then there are those who believe he may have, but it doesn't really make much of a difference to them whether he did or not. And then all the way to the other end of the spectrum, we have those who believe it, and it has changed your life. For nearly two centuries, millions have considered a phenomenal occurrence, and because of their belief, they have been able to trade in their old reality, their sin, their disappointments, their emptiness for a new life. You see, a lot is writing on this one historical supernatural event. Author Paul Little, in his book, Know Why You Believe, says this, either Jesus did or he didn't rise from the dead. If he did, it was the most sensational event in all of history. And we have conclusive answers to the profound questions of our existence. Where did we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? If Christ rose, we know with certainty that God exists. What is he like? And how we may know him in a personal experience. The universe takes on meaning and purpose, and it is possible to experience the living God in contemporary life. So the question is, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Well, Jesus predicted it in Matthew 26, 32. He says, but after I have raised, been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. I like what pastor and author Andy Stanley said. If a man can predict his death and resurrection and pull it off, I just go with what that man says. Do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? In a 2018 Pew Research study, a survey, they discovered that 64% of Americans believe Jesus rose from the dead. Of the 36 who don't, 17% say they're just not sure. You may be in that group, not sure. You have questions. How do we know the Bible is true? Is it reliable? You see, we live in a world where the voices of skeptics are loud and sometimes convincing. The New Testament of the Bible is constantly under attack regarding its reliability and accuracy. Well, let's take a look at that. 
Documents regarding historical facts need only two copies from the original in order to be de deemed accurate. Here are a few historical writings. Plato. His works were written between A.D. 61 and A.D. 113. The earliest copies were written in A.D. 900. That's over 750-year time span, and there were seven copies available. Aristotle's works were written between 384 to 322 B.C., with the earliest copies written in 1100 A.D. That's almost 400-year time span with 49 copies. And then there was Homer. <laughs> Not Homer Simpson, okay? But Homer, the author of the Iliad and the Odyssey, that work was written in 900 B.C. The earliest copies were written in 400 B.C. That's 500 years in between. And there were 643 copies. With this work, historians attribute an accuracy rating to the copies and Homer's works having a 95% accuracy of reliability. Well, what about the New Testament? The New Testament was written between 50 and 100 A.D., and the copies began circulating in the second century. That's less than 100 years. And there were 5,600 copies. The accuracy rating is at 99.5%. Now here's what the Apostle Paul wrote. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ has not raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Wow. Think about that. Biblical faith is solely dependent on the question, did Jesus rise from the dead? The resurrection is the most critical point in the following of Jesus Christ. Six verses later, Paul says, but Christ has indeed raised from the dead. You see, both Jewish and Roman sources and traditions admit to the empty tomb. So what has been the pushback on the resurrection? The Bible addresses one in Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15. It says, Meanwhile, the guards had scattered, but a few of them went into the city and told the high priests everything that had happened. They called a meeting of the religious leaders and came up with a plan. They took a large sum of money and gave it to the soldiers, bribing them to say his disciples came at night and stole the body while they were sleeping. They assured them that the governor, when the governor hears about your sleeping on duty, we will make sure you don't get blamed. You see, that would have been a death sentence. The soldiers took the bribe and did as they were told. That story cooked up in the Jewish high council is still going around. Can you say cover up? Here are some other theories. The disciples stealing the body. Yeah, right. Remember who they were. They were running away at the first sign of trouble. Here's another one. Jewish and Roman authorities moved the body. Well, if that happened, all they would have had to do is produce the, bo the body and end of story. 
the resurrection would be debunked. Another one is the women went to the wrong tomb. First of all, women were not regarded as, as legitimate witnesses. Besides, just go to the right tomb then. Here, here's one. Jesus didn't really die on the cross. It's called the swoon theory. Yeah, right. He, he was flogged so badly he couldn't carry the crossbar. On the cross, a spear was pierced through his side with blood and water flowing from his side, which is a sign that death had occurred. The, the preparation for burial, the embalming of spices wrapped tightly, weighed nearly 75 pounds. So he had no food or no water for three days, had a severe chest wound, had wounds in his hands and his feet, was wrapped in over 75 pounds of spices and material. He woke up, he came back to consciousness, and then he had to move the boulder from the inside and overthrow the Roman guards, then appear to be healed to over 500 people. If you believe that, I have some really nice real estate for you in Florida I'd like to talk to you about. Consider this. Over the 40 days that Jesus came back from the dead before he went to the Father, he appeared to over 500 people. And then think of this, too, of the life changes that have been made in those that follow him for centuries. Marriages have been restored. Uh, lives have been transitioned. And the whole concept of relationships had changed. See, for anyone who doesn't believe in the resurrection, you should want it to be true. Most people, even atheists, care about justice for the poor alleviating hunger and disease, and caring for the environment. If you believe the world was caused by accident and everything in it will eventually burn up in the death of the sun, there's really no reason to care about justice. Why sacrifice for the needs of others if in the end nothing we do will make a difference? If the resurrection of Jesus happened that means there's infinite hope and reason to pour ourselves out for the needs of the world in the modern day. Theologian N.T. Wright wrote this, The message of the resurrection is that this world matters, that the injustices and pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news of healing justice and love have won. If Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in a spiritual sense, then it's only about me finding a new dimension in my personal spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world. Easter means that in a world where injustice, violence, and degradation are endemic, God will not tolerate such things, and we will work and plan with all the energy of God to implement victory of Jesus over them all. You see, because Jesus rose from the dead, we can make three significant swaps that take us from a reality of regret to a reality of relief. We all want relief, don't we? We want relief from this virus and the effects it's had on our lives. We've had a small glimpse of isolation and separation the last few weeks, haven't we? 
When speculation started to surface that the isolation and separation may last for months, many became anxious, depressed, and were left wondering, what would that mean? What would it be like? We are not created for isolation and separation. Contrary to what introverts think, we're not. We were created for relationship, for connection. That's why when sin entered the world, it was so devastating. The Bible says that sin separates us from God. But that's not all sin does. Sin causes separation in our lives with each other. You've probably experienced that. When someone sins against you, they hurt you, they devalue you, and you don't want to be around them. Sin creates a distance, not only between me and God, but between us, each other. The Bible says that all have sinned. No one is immune from the mark of sin. We all have it. Sin sin brings isolation and separation. That's why the first swap we need to make and can make, because Jesus rose from the dead, is I need to swap my sin for God's forgiveness. That's why Jesus came. That's why he died and rose again. His death and resurrection pays the debt that sin brought. But we need to trade in our sin to receive God's forgiveness. We can't hold on to sin because sin will separate us. And if we hold on to our sin, the Bible is clear that the separation from God will go on into eternity. John 1.12 says this, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, God's forgiveness restores connection with God and with others. Here's the most and first and most important swap. Swap your sin for God's forgiveness. Until we receive God's forgiveness, we are empty of God's purpose in our life. And emptiness brings frustration. (laughs) Your gas tank is empty, you're frustrated. Your refrigerator is empty, you're frustrated. Your bank account is empty, you're frustrated. Emptiness brings frustration. When our lives are empty from the presence and the peace of God, we're frustrated. We were not created to be empty. We were created to be filled, to be fulfilled. The problem is, when we try to fill our lives with temporary things, you know, those activities or possessions and our purposes, God's fulfillment will bring eternal meaning to your life and not bring frustration. Those other things bring frustration. You have a purpose that goes beyond yourself, a purpose that allows you to be a part of a bigger plan, a purpose that gives you a reason to get up in the morning, a purpose that enables you to withstand the hard times, withstand the turmoil and the chaos this world throws at you. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, that his purpose was to give us life and life that is full of purpose and meaning. So the second swap is we need to swap our emptiness for God's fulfillment. Ask him to reveal his purpose for you. God has a purpose for each of us. Do you know yours? The third swap is swapping our disappointments for God's hope. 
Hope that in the end, everything will be all right. Not based on just dreams or based on wishful thinking, but based on God's word and his promises. You see, regret and disappointments will bring sadness. You look back on things you've done or said, and sometimes it's hard to get past your past. Sadness is not how God intended for us to live. He wants us to experience his joy. Now, this may surprise you. God is a God of joy. You may have thought God was a killjoy, always saying no to anything pleasurable. He is a God who says yes to so many things. Why? Because he wants us to experience hope and joy. When we receive his forgiveness, follow his purpose, and give him our disappointments, we get his hope, and God's hope brings joy. The prophet Jeremiah said in 20, Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Jesus made the ultimate swap. He should have been, we should have been the ones on the cross. He took our place so that we can swap our sin, swap our loneliness, and our disappointments for his forgiveness, his fulfillment, and his hope. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we can make an incredible swap. Now, for the ones who are watching who have never swapped out their sin for God's forgiveness, today could be your day. If you want to swap your sin for God's forgiveness and begin a journey of following Jesus, I want to help you with that. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, made the swap of your sin for his forgiveness, I want us to take just a few moments now to walk through this process. And it's simply you saying to God and saying to Jesus, I give you my life. I give you my life is encased in a prayer that, that I prayed and that many people who are watching have prayed over the years. I want to pray a prayer that was much like that prayer that I prayed years ago. A prayer that some here have prayed and some need to pray today. If you have never prayed this before, pray it with me. Let's pray. Say, God, I believe that you came through Jesus to die on the cross for me. I confess to you that I have sinned. I give you my sin. I ask that you would forgive me, that you would make me clean inside, that you would take the reality of my regret and swap it out with a beautiful future that goes on forever. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. I receive your forgiveness. Help me to follow you from this day forward. I give you my life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, click the screen you see right now that says, I gave my life to Jesus today. And welcome to the family of God. For those of you who may be struggling with disappointments or emptiness in your life, 
Jesus wants you to swap that out for fulfillment and for great hope and joy. I'll be praying for you this week as we go through this next week of continuing the isolation and, and trying to beat this virus. But before I go, let's just one more time, church, do this. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. One more time. He is risen. He is risen indeed. This is my resurrection day. Nothing's gonna hold me in the grave. This is my resurrection day. Nothing's gonna hold me down. Say goodbye to my yesterday. Ever since I met you, I am changed. This is my resurrection day. Nothing's gonna hold me down. Whoa.
resurrection.